Uh, well, welcome to another episode of Altered Attitudes podcast. My name's Lester. Uh, we're joined today by Sonia, who's a friend of ours who's come to Suffolk to stay to do this for us. Sonia's done podcasts before. You can go back and listen to her story. But whenever you do a podcast with someone, you always realise there's just so many more facets and so many more elements to drill down on and I think with Sonia because we both come from quite dysfunctional upbringings that's one thing that we like to talk about and because it's one of them things like recovery itself that as it's unfolding and developing you'd keep learning more don't you and it keeps Mm. changing so you know I've been 33 years Sonia's just celebrated a 17th year in recovery so you know it is an ongoing process which I think is why it's so important to have a good program and good friends because what worked last year doesn't work for me this year you discover new problems new difficulties the world's changing and you know I've never been here before I've never been in and I guess nobody has really but I've never been in this period of my life before and some of it's quite challenging and uh, so I think Sonia if you don't mind we'd like to talk a bit about sort of what we've learned about sort of our dysfunction and what we're learning about dysfunction but also you know we just did a you know in, in Scotland they've made these consumption rooms um, legal now the harm minimalization sort of growing and again we're both recovery people but you've worked in you've kind of been experienced the harm minimalization in the early part of your recovery but also you've worked in them organizations and don't want to sort of beat them down or anything like that because i'm sure everybody's doing their best to to try and do the right thing but there is differences between the harm minimalization and what we call recovery and i don't think that society's reached a place yet where they've kind of managed to come together which i think they need to well i think think that's the important thing i think what's what's kind of lacking in that process is having an action plan you know, we all have to start somewhere. We, I started off in the services, getting the methadone, and how many years ago was that? So that was um, so I'm 17, and um, now I was in prison for two years. So before then, um, so that was at 19, 20 years ago. I was I was in the services. Well, maybe you could explain a little bit then of kind of what that was like then. Mm. I mean, I know the expectation on you wasn't ever to get where you are now no no and so maybe you can explain kind of what happened what 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 you experienced what mm. what the treatment was for you then mm. um and then what actually did happen and then also talk us to that point where you you worked in abstinence recovery for quite a few years so you got a really good understanding of what abstinence mm. recovery actually is mm. And then you went to work in services that didn't mm. didn't disbelieve in that, but mm. they didn't really promote it. Mm. So when I was um, 
that 19 years ago, when I was getting a script, um, it was in a place called in a, in a in a place in Rochford in Essex, South End, and uh, I'd never heard at that point that was. I'd never heard of meetings before. I'd never even heard of abstinence-based recovery before, and I I'd, and I do believe there were meetings in South End at that point, but no one had ever spoken about it. Um, um, I didn't even couldn't even when I came into abstinence-based recovery, I couldn't comprehend it. I couldn't imagine a life without drugs, and I and I'd never seen anyone at that point who had got clean. Um, and I also... So you would not even seen people in recovery? No, I'd never, never... It was something just totally out of my comprehension. And um, and I think even for, for myself, I try and explain to people, you know, the, you've got pe some people that have been on methadone for years and years and years, and when they came into recovery, they had to kind of detox off of that. But I try and explain my experience, and I, I couldn't even... I couldn't even keep up the appointments and pick up my methadone in order to keep my script for long enough. For, I mean, there were points when I was addicted to methadone, but I, I couldn't keep the appointments at the drug service or pick up my methadone regular enough for me to be able to keep my scripts for long that term. That was like a condition, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you'd yeah. have to turn up. You had to go to the appointments, you had to go to um, collect your methadone. Why didn't you do that? Because I was too, too chaotic. I, mm. I was too. If I if I was taking if I was in if I if I was in a crack house taking drugs and on a mission doing what we do, I couldn't even comprehend not doing that. And then just going give us to an, an idea at the lowest mm. point. And you know, I want to say don't be too graphic, but I think people need to understand because mm. I think it's important. Mm. That at your lowest point, what would your day consist of that you'd have to deal with? On because, again, it's almost like people think that drug addicts are sort of like lazy because they've not got jobs and all the rest mm. of it. But it's a lot of work, isn't it? Mm, mm. So, think in a, when you woke up in the morning, what sort of time would you get up, and then what would a you know a roughly a average day look like for you? Mm. Um, and you got to fit your getting prescriptions in what, what's what, what when you wake up in the morning what's on your mind the finding ways and means to get dr more drugs and uh you you never had a plan you didn't have a diary where you you had written down what you were going to do the next day you, you every day was a new day and it was just a struggle every day was a struggle so you, you know i'd wake up and think right i'd be barred out of Southend High Street, I'd be barred from here, there, breakfast, this year. Breakfast wasn't on your mind. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, I, by the time I got to prison, um, I, I was suffering from malnutrition. I hadn't eaten for so long. Mm. Um, yeah, I was really, really, I was about just under six stone, I think. I hadn't eaten for so long. and uh, So my days consisted of waking up, and I just think about one particular occasion. I was I was staying in some bedsit or some crack house with someone, and uh, would wake up, would go, would just go out looking for opportunities. Um, and uh, this 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 young male who I used to knock about with, go earning with, 
Um, when you say opportunities, for what? Criminal activities, either stealing from shops or uh, phone snatches, snatching people's phones. He'd walk down the street and ask to borrow someone's phone and then we'd work as like a Bonnie and Clyde. It, and it wasn't really planned, it was just a way of life. And uh, he, yeah, he'd ask to borrow someone's phone and that would be, as soon as they let go of the phone and they let him borrow the phone, then he'd gone. And that, so that would be our first catch. And then we try and find a, a, a shop that I can get in without, because every single camera in South End, if I'd walked close to South End High Street and all the adjoining roads, every single camera, as soon as they spotted me, they would, I'd be followed. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, because there's a big picture of you on the front page of the South End Echo, weren't there? Yeah, yeah. I was the first girl in South East Essex to get an ASBO for soliciting. Hmm. Um, and uh, so I was, I was well known in South End. So it, it, towards the end, towards my lowest points, uh, when all, all, all opportunities were kind of taken away, it just got horrific. It, it just got just totally inhumane kind of activities throughout the day. It was, um, when I think about it, it, yeah, it makes me feel really sad for that person who was really lost and really lost and struggling in life in general and not having really what the services now, how the services are now are very different to what they were then. Mm -hmm. uh, nowadays, the services have, I worked in the services for a, a few months when I first returned to South End, and uh, now the services are kind of, they have a lot of people working in them that are in recovery, abstinence-based recovery. So I think that people that go into the services, there are, you know, there are more conversations about meet, going to meetings, abstinence-based recovery. I mean, not everyone that works in the services in, is in abstinence-based recovery. A lot of them are in different sorts of recovery, what they call recovery, but it's not what we would call recovery and abstinence-based recovery. So when, when you kind of like decided I need help, mm. you know, like help in the sense of, because I guess you go through a lot of years where you think all you need is a nice flat, mm. get on the sick or whatever. But when does it come to a point where you think I need help with my addiction? What, what, when was that point happen for you? In prison. I'd been. In, I'd never thought. Of, I never thought. I think that towards the end of me being out, when I was out before I went to prison, I think uh, I never thought about getting a flat. The the drug addict lifestyle was my lifestyle. I thought that was it, and uh, I'd lost my place. I'd living in people's cities and different kind of drug houses. Um, I had nothing to no one at that point, and then um, the point where I, I'd never thought about getting clean before, I'd never, um, I'd never wanted to get clean before. It wasn't something that was in my mind's comprehension. So what was you aiming at then? Just using or trying to just surviving. control it? And no, not, it nothing. Was, just there was surviving. No even, there was no even idea about oh, if I can just do this and then I can get a nice life, but no. still use drugs. It no. was just like, I've just got to get the next... Just survive yeah. and just get the next bit of gear. And, at uh, all costs. Yeah, at all costs. And not even think about 
not even think about later on that afternoon or that evening. You're just thinking about the next 30 seconds. Mm. Um, so I think the first time I ever thought about getting clean or addressing anything was after about a year of being in prison. And uh, a drug worker that I had working in there, she can't, she, she was an Al-Anon member and she had two sons that were drug addicts and uh, I guess she saw something in me which no one had ever identified before uh, or seen in me before and she could kind of see that I was at the end of my road and uh, all resources were exhausted and, uh, and she kind of helped bring that out in me and plus another lovely lady called Rosie a chaplaincy lady, she kind of fought my corner while I was in there and um, and I think that's where it kind of born from. That's where it was born from when they started talking to me about going to rehab um, from prison. Um, I had to look through this big catalogue of different rehabs and I, I remember, now you, you think about, I've got no experience of 12-step. I've got no knowledge of what they are. Because most rehabs were 12-step, weren't they, I think, then? Yes, yeah, I think so. But from my mind, from my very limited mind um, about life in general, definitely recovery, I, um, I said to my key worker, my drug worker, I'll go to any rehab apart from 12-step. Now that's, I don't even know where that was born from because I've got no experience of it. I hadn't never done anything 12-step orientated before. And, um, and the funny thing was, um, I went to go and see a rehab in... Would, in, would you have met anyone by then that's 12-step, like in the prison, like in NA meetings or anything I'd like been that? to a, a little meeting in, in the HM Prison Downview, and it was a little NA meeting. And um, there was a young girl that kind of took the meeting, very pretty, very kind of hippie young girl that took the meeting, used to come in cross-legged and talk to people. And uh, she hadn't come from where I'd come from, and... She was very different to me, and uh, and I just thought, look, she ain't like me. It didn't relate. At I that couldn't point. relate to her at all. I couldn't. There was, and I don't even know if my mind, because they've got they've got a saying in the in the meetings where they say, look at the similarities, not the differences. So I was just looking at stuff that would separate me from people about the prisons, the intravenous drug use. Now she may have had all the experiences that I've had, like couldn't. Um, once you start using, you can't stop, and how she thought and how she felt. Mm. But I was looking at all the stuff that would separate us, yeah. and that's all I had. But relating is quite important, yeah, I think, as well, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Mm. So, so I, I just used to go to the meeting just to get a cigarette and a cup of coffee, and also the, that, that actual meeting was right next to the visits hall where you could see people coming out of their visits. So that was a bit of a thing for us in... in, in prison um, just seeing who had got what from visits <laughs> <laughs> so um, so my, my drug worker I wasn't lit up from them meetings is <clears> what <throat> I'm trying to say so um, my drug but you worker I guess you started to develop the idea that did you start thinking then that you could be free from drugs at that point no not really no didn't see that no, as a no as an option no couldn't see that at all. I didn't really see that until I'd come out and 
got into a rehab and then joined the 12 step community so would you then at that point would you kind of think that if somebody you because again you said you never met anyone so what some what would you call somebody doing well at that point like on a drug addict that was doing well what would be your sort of standard of doing well i remember when i first got clean i, I, I used a couple of times after i come out of prison and i remember saying to you even if i could get a few days off a month i'd be satisfied with that mm. staying on benefits i couldn't even think beyond that i didn't even think beyond that i just thought having a few days off of that lifestyle that torturous lifestyle every month would be better than what i had so it could have been on a methadone script yeah 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 as long course. as you wasn't having to run around yeah yeah stealing mm. prostituting yeah doing all of that sort of mm. thing just to be free from that lifestyle yeah yeah so just being sort of balanced on on medication would mm. have been a pretty decent step up definitely and i think it is a step just up a decent I, step up yeah i think it is a good step up and i think people people need that people need to get into the services to get stabilized and then think about the next step hmm. i think that's because you would have been happy with that at that point yeah definitely definitely yeah. i couldn't yeah I, could, I, could, I didn't understand what recovery was i didn't i remember walking into the rehab when i first left prison and uh and i remember pe them saying oh we're just sick people we're just trying to get better we're sick we yeah we need to get better we need to be abstinent and i remember thinking to myself well i'm not sick i just need to stop using I didn't have, my, my brain was so limited and I'd never had the information before, never had the conversations before. I just didn't understand what recovery was. Yeah. And I think so you're still obsessed with drugs? Yeah, definitely. Obsessed with some, anything. Yeah. And what happened there? So... I'm just, I was just sort of also interested in sort of that moment when you start thinking that recovery would be possible for you what sort of brought that about do you think at what point did that occur to you the actual fact i could so you must have seen lots of people yeah, then yeah, that so would probably did relate to a bit more that, that made recovery possible that were like you so that was by the time i got to watford from the rehab i think or going to the meetings in luton i guess going to some of the meetings in luton there were some real junkies, like drug addicts in there getting clean and uh, and then I started seeing that recovery was possible. Then I could see, but I still had a bit of distrust in me. Now they're lying, they can't be true. I couldn't, I couldn't really fully comprehend that they were telling the truth and they weren't using at all. I used to think, oh, they may be, are they going to use at weekends or they must be on some sort of medication or they must be having a drink or something. I couldn't comprehend fully, really, until I got to Watford, that until I actually got to know these people and were in their lives, entangled in their lives, that actually these people are not using anything. They are abstinent and they are happy and they are getting on with their lives. So, a little bit mental. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very, yeah. <laughs> very, yeah. Including yourselves. Yeah, absolutely, but, yeah. But doing doing life. Mm, yeah. And I, then 
you kind of see that um, education was possible, getting going, going into volunteer work was possible. Yeah, because there's people then that you see that had not, that were quite way down the road, mm. that had really started to build really good lives, mm. not just settling for council flat and methadone, mm. but they're actually getting their families back, mm. getting careers, getting jobs, mm. getting houses. You start seeing all of them stories, I think, don't you? Well, I think my neural nets were at that point. My, my brain was growing. My, I'd never had the information before, so I had nothing to compare it to. I had nothing to think about. So then but when I was in Watford, my, my, my brain started to grow and develop. And, uh, and I started, I guess, getting some hope. I remember being in the AA meetings and um, uh, for some time, by this time, I think I'd hit my bottom. My bottom was never about going to prison, losing my daughter, waking up next to someone who's died from an overdose, or the, some of the horrific things that I'd experienced and done in my life. That was never anything to do with my bottom. My bottom came when I was physically the best I'd ever been. My external circumstances were the best I'd ever been. And I'd used a couple of times after coming out of prison and the pain inside, one day it was just finished. I know I used a couple of times and all the, all the using, the finding ways and means to get more, all them, um, the abilities that I had in me years ago were exhausted and I knew not just that, but my, my age and what I'd now seen, I knew it was over. I knew the using was... I knew from that last time I used, on October the 1st, 2006, I knew the war was over. And I remember the feeling that I had at that point. And I could feel a massive shift in me. When people talk about bottoms, they sometimes talk about, yeah, I've had loads of rock bottoms, and I think... You can't have more than one rock bottom. The rock bottom I had was when I hit the bottom, it's over, and I accepted the help. And I knew I needed the help. And uh, it felt like there was a massive shift in my brain and a massive, massive shift in my, my emotional state. I started to feel hope. I start do, do you feel, because again, I like to think of that, as I say, addiction is a closed mind and mm. recovery is an open mind. Yeah. That's the moment that, yeah. Cause again, most people even take drugs because they think it opens their mind. Mm. And they still do it, even like, you know, on spiritual kind of mm. idea that they take ayahuasca and all stuff like that, trying to open up their mind. But would you say that's what happened to you in that moment that your mind opened up to... Cracked open very slightly, very slightly, to the possibility of but then, recovery. But that was to accept recovery. Yeah, So yeah, there was yeah. a massive resistance to it up until yeah. that. But but you'd been around it mm. for how long at that time? Because uh, I guess you must A few have, months. Because you've been going to, get, going to meetings. Never stopped going to meetings. Learning about it. Listening and, to people. Uh, just encouragement around me all the time. And the repetitiveness in the meetings, I think that's what's really important as well. Um, people sometimes say, oh, boring, going to the same meetings, this, listening to the same stuff. And I think when you're early in recovery, I think the, the repetitiveness is so important because we just don't get it. Honestly, information used to go in one ear and just used, it felt like it fell out the other ear and I'd forget. But the, the, 
what's good about the 12-step meetings, book studies or, or step meetings, listening to people's stories and experiences, is that they're quite repetitive and I needed things repeating to me because I just can't, couldn't withhold information in my brain. And then after, after a little bit of time, you just find your own way and you start having your own experiences. I mean, when I first got clean, I was trying to be like that one, that one, or t telling that one story, but eventually I started to have my own experience. I, I, was so, I felt so void of myself, I couldn't even tell you how I felt or what I was thinking because I was, it was so void. Um, but it took me some time to be able to do that, pushed into a corner uh, where I knew I had to do that in order to recover. Mm. I needed to be honest. And, and again, just to try and sort of, I guess, fly me flag for recovery mm -hmm. and highlight, do you think you'd have reached that place if you wasn't surrounded by them other people or them other people telling you their stories or the way out or...? No, I don't. How, my brain wouldn't have understood it. I don't. I think that um, people say, people say, don't they? You can tell how a person's doing by who they're hanging around with. And I think that the you you've always said about people's environments. The environment's so important, and I found that to be my experience. Your environment of um, where where you're working, living, hanging around with is so important because you start to turn into your environment, you start learning from your environment. So people, whoever's around you, they start to transmit what they've got in them into you. So that's why it's so big, so people have to be so careful about what support you're getting, whether it's healthy support or dysfunctional support. Mm -hmm. I think it's so important about what sort of support you're accepting in your life. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm glad I was around a, a kind of a a mature AA environment who were aware of the programme, who um, were able to transmit that into me. Mm. Otherwise, I never would have had it. So then did life get easy from that point? <laughs> the fantasy was, and I think that um, this is what I've been learning really in the last year, is that... Um, you kind of, you can't, you get clean and you, you're quite immature really. I felt, looking back now, I was quite immature, quite um, underdeveloped, quite emotionally and, and my mental faculties were very underdeveloped. How old would you say you would have been at that? How old was you then? I'd say I was about 14. And how old was you actually physically? 38, no, 38, yeah. 38, yeah. but you probably about 14 year yeah. old girl. Yeah. It, and dealing with all of that addiction yeah. with like a fourteen year old mm. girl's mental mm. capacity and emotional, that's Definitely. even more extreme, isn't it? I'd never been through the healthy like when teenagers when they start dating, um, when they first go to work, when they first get their first car. I'd never been through any of them healthy processes. So I didn't understand. So at thirty eight years old now I'm going trying to go through these processes and um with the mental condition that I had as well, was very difficult. Yeah, so I don't think people realise that, yeah. that all of that healthy growth, which is mm. even like we talk about nicotine mm. and the children doing um, marijuana and how it stunts their growth. Yeah, yeah. But they, even like nicotine, mm. it's a suppressant. Mm. 
And so when people want to give up smoking at like 40 and they get all these emotions that they can't cope with, it's because they've been suppressing yeah. their natural development. Mm. But the journey that you were on is even more. Mm. So that process begins again. Mm. I mean, I didn't start using when I was 14, but there was some dysfunctional stuff that went on in my life. And I think that a lot of stuff was suppressed. I, I, th I think I was very confused. I think also you have to be around healthy adults yeah, 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 that yeah. can guide you through them mm. processes mm. and interact with you mm. through them processes. Because mm. I think even the same in recovery, like you said, it's being around a group of people that can guide you through, they're almost repairing you. Because mm. yeah, I definitely. notice that people that come from as deep down as you do, mm. they almost need repairing. In. Mm. It's not even just about the addiction. It's mm. about this adult or this child living mm. in an adult's body that's quite screwed up mm. and mm. there's no quick way to redevelop that person. Mm. It needs to be a natural process, mm. which is why I say the environment is mm. king, really, building the right environment for that person to develop in. And long-term as well. Long like you term. say, it doesn't happen overnight. It's, uh, and I was saying earlier, I was saying just now that um, when I first got clean, I, I was thinking this year about how immature my vision or my dreams were um, of what was going to happen in my recovery. I was so excited. I was like a little puppy dog. I was so excited to be clean and, and uh, thinking about the future and what was going to happen. That was kind of coming from a very limit, limited resource and not taking into consideration the harm that my addiction had caused my child. Um, I, I knew it had caused harm. I couldn't really see at that point as to what extent the harm it had caused. Um, because I was in my own process, I was just so excited to be clean and, 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 and on track and getting my life back together. So I couldn't really see into the future at that point. And mm -hmm. even, yeah, I had nothing in me, no, nothing to relate it to, to be able to, to, to understand what was going to happen in the future. Yeah, you still remain quite a selfish yeah. person in mm. early recovery, but because mm. I think you have to reach a certain level of consciousness mm. Mm. before that starts getting mm. dealt with. Mm. I don't know if everybody reaches that, if I'm honest, in my experience, because mm. you've really got to learn to look at yourself quite a lot. And Because, again, I think through the 12-step programme, it's teaching you to look at yourself mm. and your behaviours and your responses. Mm. And I think the more you do that, the more you become self-aware, mm -hmm. the more you become empowered. Um, but then you start noticing things like, I'm quite selfish mm. or fearful mm. or guilty or shameful, whatever. That's kind of blocking you off from mm. developing. But, mm. but some of that stuff's pretty traumatic to acknowledge about yourself in it i think yeah, most people don't want to do that no it's terrible it's not terrible it's it's uh sometimes it's quite i mean when you get to the point where you can see oh even even this year celebrating my 17 years i think about i mean the first few years was for me was amazing it, that i was clean and i'd reached one two three four five six years i, I was amazed I was still amazed, and it is still amazing 17 years, and I'm really grateful and forever grateful in that. 
but I think that um, thinking about our children, like the truth is, they don't want to celebrate the 17 years. Because celebrate what? Taking a drug that I shouldn't have taken and let them yeah. down. Like they've been let down. Yeah. And that's what's kind of come to me this year. And it feels a little bit... Which is feels, true, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, 100%. And, and, and in a sense you are guilty of mm. that because of the addiction. Definitely, definitely. But that's really been revealed to me over the lot this year, really. Yeah. That's quite yeah. hard to accept, I mm. guess, isn't it? But it's, I get it, mm. I get it. Why would you want to keep celebrating your parents' recovery milestone, like 17 years down the line, celebrating something that they should never have done in the first place, and there's been some great harm caused in that. So I, I do get it. And it felt a little bit, it felt, even though it's nice people celebrating it with you, it feels a little bit self selfie yeah it's like that in addiction <laughs> isn't it? it is quite hard because mm. you, you on one end it's glad the person's stopped that behavior mm -hmm. and that damage mm -hmm. which they shouldn't have been doing in the first place so even like you try and tell to encourage people in addiction you sort of say look most people in this world have to do something good mm to get the recognition and credit you're going to get for not doing something bad. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but then if you actually do something good, mm. it's like a, a double bonus. Yeah. Now, I think that works maybe better on parents than it does on children mm -hmm. because they've been damaged for all of that. Yeah. Mm. And they haven't had a... They've either had an absent parent in their life or a very dysfunctional parent that's let God knows what's come into their home. They've, mm. they've let everything into their home. They've not protected that child. Mm. And I think that's, even though that child wants nothing more than their parent, mm. even when the parent comes back after addiction and recovery, that child's not... But it's not the same. It's just not the same. Yeah. And there's a lot of damage by then, isn't mm. there, that they've got to deal with. And it's almost like, you know, I think it says it in the AA books, just the way it says it, it's fantastic. And it? it says, the person that thinks, um, it's like, we think the person that thinking sobriety or being clean is enough, is uncaring. They're mm. like the person that comes out of the root cellar after a hurricane. Mm sees all of the devastation mm. and then just says, ain't it grand, the wind we stopped blowing, blowing. <laughs> not acknowledging the years of reconstruction that lay mm -hmm. ahead. But, mm. but again, a lot of people are like that in early mm. recovery, isn't it? Well, they think, well, at least I'm not using. Mm. They just don't seem to understand mm. about the devastation. Mm. That, again, it's not necessarily their fault mm. because they've been sick mm -hmm. or under the influence of mind or in substances but nevertheless it doesn't make the child feel any better yeah of course it's because yeah. they're damaged well thinking about this the thing that made me think it or realize this in the last year is that um i think about how did i feel about my mum when i was re reconnected to my mum 
And what was your mum like? So my mum was alcoholic. Um, she passed away in 2018. Um, she she left my dad when I was seven, and me and my dad moved over from Finland to England. And my sister, um, who passed away in 2013 from alcoholism. Um, so my, I was abandoned by my mum. Uh, my mum was alcoholic. She was very selfish by nature. Um, but what I realised in recovery, it was never about me. I always, uh, when a parent neglects or abandons the child, the, ch the child doesn't neglect or abandon the mum or the adult, the child starts to neglect and abandon themselves. So what I realised about my mum was is that she, I always thought that I wasn't good enough. She didn't love me or something wrong with me. But I learned over the years that it was never about me, it's about her. And I only learned that because I went through the same process myself with Jodie. And, um, but that still leaves a deficit. Yes. That, yeah. you, that you didn't feel loved yeah. or valued mm -hmm. or cared for. That doesn't just automatically pop up. Mm. Just because you realise that, mm. or you forgive them, does mm. it? You still left with a deficit. With a deficit. Mm. No, definitely. And I think that the fellowship and the program and the people, people in the fellowship, in 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 a chapter called A Vision for You in the Big Book, it talks about um, is this a, is this a sufficient substitute? Mm. Um, indeed, it is. It's a fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I think it doesn't say anything about God or the steps there. It says the fellowship, it's and the I think substitute, yeah. is the substitute. And I think that's where that's where I've got what I've needed, and the deficits that I had from childhood, I've started to rebuild them and and replace them through people in the fellowship that have helped me. So I think that realizing about. And 17 years later, yeah. you're still having them relationships yeah. with a lot of them people. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think that just just going back to jo Jodie and thinking about uh, uh, her and how she feels about me and my relationship with her, and then thinking about my mum, is that when my mum and myself were reconnected, it was never going to be the same. It was, and this is my learning for this year. The relationship was never going to go back to how it was years ago. It was just going to grow and develop into a new relationship from that point. And uh, I think that was a, that's been a massive learning for me for this year. Mm. Um, that my daughter's now an adult. She's in. She's just about to have a baby any day now. She's got a good man beside her. She's building her own life. She's fiercely independent. She, she's she's a real mixture of me and her dad. I like to blame her dad, <laughs> <laughs> but the, the the reality is she's a real mix between me and her dad, and uh, and and she's on her own journey. She's on her own journey. But I think the important thing for me is for me to for me to try and I'm there if you need me. I'm your mum, and. And I'm not perfect. I don't get things right all the time, and I certainly haven't got them right through the years. Uh, but I do mm. do my best, and I'm solid, and I'm and I'm here. Yeah, I think that it's like when you talk to a lot of people about this stuff, and is that yeah, 
especially sort of you come into AA therapy, that kind of thing, you start looking at your past and the dysfunction and what what you did wrong, what was done wrong to you, and you start getting this realization of, you know, it's quite it was quite a revelation to me that you kind of think, man, when I stop being screwed up, everything's going to be all right, and then you kind of stop being so screwed up, and you realize, man, everyone's a bit screwed up. And so you find yourself going very quickly, I did, from being this alcoholic addict to a very dysfunctional person that wasn't very well equipped to deal with the world, relationships, other people, problems, stuff like that. And then you start thinking almost like you blame your past your childhood that it didn't give you what you needed to succeed to the future but something in you isn't it it makes you want to go back and try and get it (laughs) it's like if i can go back and get it then i'll be all right now and then i find that you start almost demanding from parents and Mm -hmm. people that they give you back what you feel they they owed you. They owed you. But then I think at some point you sort of realise they haven't got it. They never had it. Mm. And when are you going to stop trying to get it from them? Mm. And then that's when you think, well, where do I get it from? Mm. And it's almost like... So again, it's like you sort of... The... the uh, the analogy that I use is this guy, I get this quite often, but this guy says to me, my mum never loved me. And is it unreasonable for a son to expect his mum to love him? I said, mate, you're a 40 year old man. I think it's unreasonable for you to demand your mum loves you at your age, you'll still be behaving like a child. Mm. I said, you're married. Mm. You should really only care about your wife loving you. But I think until you make that change in your mind from child to adult, Mm. you keep demanding from your parents. Mm. And I think if you can make that change, like again, like you said you did in recovery, where you make that switch in your mind Mm. and say, look, I need to draw a line. And I think like you were saying there with Jody, to to be able to say, I've got to let go of that old idea. Mm. We need to build a new relationship because I want a good relationship, but I can't build a good relationship on that old relationship. Mm-hmm. It's almost like you cannot make a silk purse out of a pig's ear. Mm-hmm. I made a pig's ear of it. Mm. Guilty. Guilty, Done. 100%. Mm. Can we build a new loving relationship? Mm. But again, they've got to want to do that. If yeah. they're not willing to let go of the pigs here, mm. then there's no silk purse mm. building. They're going to try and um, pretty up the pigs here. Mm. But, you know, you put lipstick on a pig, you still got a pig. Mm. And I think that's something I've learned. I don't know. Do you, do you think that's the same? 100%, but, yeah. No, I've, I think that I've, I've had um, the last year has been pretty painful for me. I think that 
I, I have to consider to myself that I have a lot of support around me. I have a lot of people to speak to, I have a lot of guidance and I have a lot of support in the meetings and my, my little network. And you think that pe people in the world, they don't have that. I mean, they've got their boyfriends, nans, friends. Um, so I think that I think that we are in that process most definitely, but Jodie's on her own little journey. And I think that through me doing what I'm doing, um, and me having the realisation as well that Jodie's 29, she's not my baby anymore. She's not my child anymore. She's an adult. No, she's but an she adult. got to realise that though. Yeah. <laughs> she, she's an adult who's got a good man, little baby on the way. She's got her own little life. And um, I, that's been a thing for me. I've had to let go of that because I was somewhere unconsciously still that she's my baby, she's my baby. And the truth is, she's not, she's, she's a grown adult. Yeah, see, selfishness is the mm. problem, I think, isn't it? Mm. Is that, you know, it says in the AA book that self is the root of all our problems. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, what we all want more than anything, like you're saying, that the, the fellowship, we want companionship, we mm. want closeness with other people, but being selfish isn't, isn't a good way of being that, and I find that that when you've been someone selfish, and I mean, when I say selfish, it's not like some people might think, well, you don't lend people money or do anything mm. nice. It's not, it's you're thinking about yourself mm. more than others all the time, which mm. I think we're in, we're in a very selfish world, I think, at the moment. I think that's why everyone's filling up with anxiety and fears mm. and antidepressants. I think that's because the world's becoming very self selfish. Mm-hmm. But I guess that can still, when children, what they don't realise is, is that when they're being treated that way, that all they're really thinking about is themselves. Mm -hmm. And so when you speak to people that are children, that have dysfunctional parents, even though they're adults, mm. but they're also dysfunctional parents to their children, but just looking forward rather than back, mm. that it's, you say to people, have you made amends to your parents? And most people are like, well, yeah, I've forgiven them. It's like, I don't think you have. Mm. You're still angry at them. Mm. Not, not for what they're doing today, but what they did. And it's kind of like, well, what do you mean? It's like, well, this. Can you say this, this is kind of like my test, is to say to people, look, can you say to your parents that let you down, that abused you, that treated you bad? I know this is radical, what I'm going to say, but it gives the idea, and, it, and, it, and it's why we're trying to want to get people to. Did you ever think that it's not what they did to you that screwed you up, it was your responses to it mm. that's screwing you up. They're like, what you saying? It's my fault. It's like, I'm not saying it's your fault, I'm just saying it's your responsibility. Mm. It's your ability to respond. Mm -hmm. And the way you're responding, mm. even like 20 years after the fact, mm -hmm. is very negatively. Mm. 
very angrily, mm. very unforgiving, mm. very judgmental. And because you keep responding from that place, you're continually getting sick. Mm. And so the amends to your parents, I'm sure a lot of people are swearing now I'm saying this, it would, be go, it would sound like this. Dear mum and dad, I'm really sorry because I didn't consider you in this at all. And I stayed angry towards you. I've been judgmental towards you. I've been unforgiving towards you. And for all of these years, I've just held all of this hostility and hatred towards you. And I blamed you for being selfish. <laughs> but really, it's me as well. Mm. And I think if you can't resolve that in you mm. to realise... See, it's what you try and tell people. Say, look, you keep going on about how badly treated you were. No one's saying that didn't happen. And no one's saying that's not terrible. Mm. You got abused. That's terrible. Mm. That's not your fault. But if you don't resolve it mm. and take responsibility for resolving it, it's not going to resolve. That's yeah. not anyone having a go at you. That's Because that feeling's inside you. Yes. That feeling that you're feeling is inside you, yes. so it's yours. It's your responsibility. Mm. It's mm. your response. You'll keep responding to something mm. that happened 20 mm. years ago and creating a bad feeling in mm. yourself. If you don't take responsibility for your emotional development, then you're going to keep responding like that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and going around trying to convince the world that it's not your fault mm. because you're a victim of abuse, let down, abandonment, mm. neglect, which is all true and wrong. If seven billion people on earth agree with you, it's not going to make you feel any better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, mm. you know, again, in the AA program, it says this, look, the world and the people were quite often wrong. We get that. That was wrong. Mm. But it's your responses mm. that's making you ill. Mm. Now, as a child, you couldn't respond any differently. Mm. But you're not a child anymore. Mm. And so even having to say to 40-year-old men, mm. mate, stop trying to get your mum to love you. Mm. Honestly, if she don't love you by now, she probably ain't gonna because she ain't got it in her. Mm -hmm. And in actual fact, if you want her to love her, love you, start loving her. Mm. Start loving her. Because mm. maybe no one's loved her. Maybe she's not felt that. It's not in her. If it was in her, it'd be in you. Mm. If they had it, you'd have it, guaranteed. Being transmitted. 100%. Mm. They give you what they got, good and bad. Mm. At some point, you've got to iron it out. Mm. You've got to say, do you know what? Is this who I am or is this who I've become? Mm. Some of it you can change. Some of it I don't think you can. I, honestly, I think, I think I read somewhere, but I think I concur. It says to get rid of that level of dysfunction you're talking about, and Jody, mm. if you work hard, the pair of you, mm. 
And Hattie, when she's born, it's going to take it three generations mm. to work it out. Mm. That's going to be anywhere from 60 to 90 years of life. Mm. If you work on it, you can work out that dysfunction. Mm. And then Hattie's children may get everything that you guys felt you were missing. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. And that's a serious problem, isn't it? Yeah, that of it course. takes so long to work that out. And so, and I sort of butted in and talk a lot along mm. there. But again, I think that's the thing I like talking with you most of all because I think more than anything, we're mm. on this journey of discovering and overcoming dysfunction mm. more than addiction nowadays, I think. Yeah, I think we? so, yeah, definitely. And it's, that's the hard bit, isn't it? Well, if you just jump then, I guess we just had a quick break for a pee and a stand in the sun and a bit of a discussion on uh, how difficult recovery can be emotionally and mentally but um, just to sort of sum up Sonia I think you know like I think what I took from what you're saying in important bits I think is that you know there's that I think you have to be around a certain amount of recovery before you understand it because again I don't think people really understand it do you agree with that? that well I think you learn more all the time as long as you're around a, a, a healthy recovering community of people I think that more gets revealed to you every year. As I've said, I've, I've had some loads of revelations this year. Um, mm. Painful as it is, as, pain, as painful as it's been going through the process, but I think the important thing for me is not leaving the process, staying in the process, and just trying to navigate through it with the help of others, and kind of get into the peace side of it. And uh, I think at the moment, through the last years, kind of revelations is I've, I've just found some peace again um i've been quite um i think going back to south end where where you sort of started mm. and then having to readapt to being in a different environment mm. but also back i guess there must have been a lot of triggers and things like that and then closer to family again and yeah i, th I think it so puts a demand on you doesn't it mm. i don't feel like uh, i don't feel like I definitely feel like South, coming back to Southend was the right thing for me. I definitely think that. Yeah. I'm really happy I'm back here. But it, it just, again, like you say, it brings up new other issues uh, mm. that I never really thought about. But I guess what we've learned through our experience, mm -hmm. Strength and Hope, mm -hmm. is that even the difficulties that you may be facing today, mm -hmm. You've got the tools to keep working mm. to build a better future and a better relationship with anyone who wants to do that mm. that with you. And I think that's the big difference. Mm. I, I wasn't very well equipped mm. to do that without a programme and people around me to give me guidance mm. and help. Because it's not easy, is it? No, and I think as well, what I've realised this year is it's, I'm, I'm not the only one in this process. Yeah. There's other really hurt people in this process and given kind of Jodie being an adult and she's in her own process so I can't, it isn't just me that's in this process. So given, um, I think like you've said, it's being able to do my bit and then giving them a chance to go through their own process and just stepping back and letting them do mm. their own thing without, without me trying to control it all um, and me 
the outcomes that I want, um, letting go of all of that, just doing my part, just yeah. doing my part. And I think that it seems to be getting resolved now and the journey started now in a more clear, now I can understand more and see more. Yeah, because you can't kind of build a healthy relationship without healthy boundaries, yeah. but the boundaries can be quite difficult yeah. to set, can't mm. they, I think? No, definitely, and I'm a really sensitive person, even though mm. I'm quite I'm quite assertive, I'm quite out there, uh, I'm quite a sensitive and hurt and fragile individual, um, which is my responsibility to look after that, not anyone else's. Um, it would be nice if people kind of acknowledged or respected that but that's not within my control um, especially if they're angry they want to hurt yeah, you as yeah, well yeah definitely and I and I it, all, all that when because you can still you can still be I find a lot of times with families especially children because they're still hurt mm. they want to continue to punish and yeah. I didn't have children myself mm. which kind of on one hand I feel very grateful for but I do find a great respect for parents, especially mothers that I mm. see, that their children are punishing them mm. in I recovery. Don't need to my yeah, but they they let mm. themselves be punished, mm. Mm. and I think that really touches me now. It's like mm. a very deep mm. humility, even though we wish that didn't happen. It's mm. like if that's what you need to do to me mm. to feel better. Mm. Then, then, uh, then to a degree, they let that happen. Mm, mm. No, it's a really painful. It's it's very painful. Yeah, I think most people want to avoid that. Mm, and, and the mm. sad thing is, you never get the close relationship. Then mm, I mm. think most people want to avoid that difficult journey mm. because it's so uncomfortable. Mm. So they move away and mm. do stuff like that. Which again, I can understand is probably a good. Mm tactic for a period of time in early recovery but trying to rebuild relationships with people that you've hurt and let down especially children it's no easy task but i think it's selfish not to yeah of course yeah yeah and i think that when you first get clean you don't even think about that no we you can't all... really we don't even know it exists no I don't it think, didn't even know it existed i just thought i oh, just thought just... i was getting clean and it was just so amazing it just felt so it, I was just so excited, like a little puppy dog, like, like a careless little puppy dog getting clean for the, at least the first few years. I never even knew that or thought about it. But as the journey goes long term, then these things start to get revealed to you. And you're either in the process or not. And I think that, I think you can't start experiencing that stuff or learning that stuff until you're in long term recovery. Yeah, because you don't know what you don't know, do you? Yeah, and I think yeah. that's the thing about this. It's mm. like constantly being revealed to mm, us. And I'm definitely. 33 years and mm. it's still being revealed to me mm. about my own dysfunction, mm. the dysfunction of my family, the world, mm. the difficulties, the uh, the struggles that we're all facing. Mm. And and uh, you think, my God, I just didn't know anything mm. really growing up. It's so ill-equipped to... Mm have a decent relationship, have a decent mm. job, to be a contributing member of community. I was so ill-equipped. And even though I think I have been a very contributing member of society, it was done in a very dysfunctional way. Mm. 
But I think society needs that also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if it didn't yeah. have people like us, mm. I don't know whether it'd actually get better in certain areas. Mm -hmm. Because again, this is the sort of argument I've got going on at the minute. When the uh, the government cut back the finances, all of your turning points, mm. CGLs, all of them organisations, because they've kept the funding for their services and stopped funding rehabs, mm. the rehabs have been struggling and closing down and mm. the periods of staying rehabs have become very short. Mm. I think we're losing that recovery mm. that rescued you. Yeah, people definitely. like you. There's a lot of people that come through East Coast Recovery. I think there's a lot of people that done the six months, nine months, 11 months, 12 months. Uh, there's a lot of them guys that have now got long-term sobriety who done them long stints in the rehab because we needed it. Mm. And then you've got the guys that don't need that, that say, oh, you can get clean in the rooms. And I think, well, I'm really pleased that you did, and that's fantastic, but that wasn't my experience. Yeah. That wasn't... Well, and most of them people in them rooms mm. have been through rehab. Yeah, yeah. Mm. You know, so again, it's like, it does become a self-perpetuating um, recovery, but it has to reach a certain pitch. Mm. Otherwise, it starts rescinding. Mm. Mm. You know, so I'm... I'm advocating for like the fact that they've defunded recovery inadvertently mm. because they were funding it inadvertently by funding rehabs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now that's stopped. I think mm. there's going to be a knock-on, and I think Scotland is the example of that mm. because Scotland never really had many rehabs, mm. and I think that's why their death rate is so high mm. because they've not got enough recovery to mm. meet the, the massive problem that they mm. have, yeah. yeah I don't no. think professionally they're ever going to have enough money to do that. I think they need to invest in recovery fellowships. Mm. Because again, it's like, when you see that happening for people like you, people like me, it, it really frustrates me that people are against the 12-step fellowship. Mm. And a lot of the time, they're like, well, it's not the only way and all that. It's like, mate, I don't want to defend it. Mm. I will, because I have to. Mm. I just know there's a way that works. Yeah, this is a way. A way this that works. Way because proven. it creates an incredible mm. fellowship. The altruism mm. and the one addict and alcoholic talking to another and supporting each other is without value. Mm. I don't think there's a professional organization in this country mm. apart from rehabs mm. that can reproduce that because mm. it they just become the catalyst for the natural development to happen mm. Mm. and i think that's the important bit mm. is that and then it sort of starts looking after itself to a degree yeah yeah definitely and, and trying to get people to see that that's been defunded in our country mm. Scotland never had it. Mm. It's definitely been defunded in our country because Turning Point, CGL and them organisations mm. are pretty much spending all the money on their... What they call treatment, which their, is methadone. Their treatment. Mm. 
Well, I think they're trying to build recovery, and mm. but again, their version of recovery, our version of recovery, is not the same. Yeah, yeah. It's more harm minimalisation. Mm. Again, I don't think they ever can do recovery. I think the best thing for them to do is to start funding rehab placements in community rehabs mm. and let the community rehabs start mm. populating that community with recovery. Mm. Let them, you do the harm minimalisation, mm. and let the recovery take care of itself. But that's what the action plan, I think the action plans would be good to bring them in, get them stabilised on the scripts, get them settled, not using on top and then send them into the recovering community, into rehabs, and then the guys that work in the rehabs who are in recovery can transmit the recovery into them. Do you think that's their goal though, recovery or just stabilisation? Well I don't think they understand recovery. It's like, 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 so like, in a sense, you didn't understand it yeah. until you was around mm. it and see what it was, mm. then you could see yourself in recovery. Yeah, definitely. And then you started to work for recovery, and then you started to get recovery. Well, I think that mine's probably quite an extreme case. Well, I think that's what makes it good, because yeah. you don't get a lot worse addict than you. I think... And or was. Really, I was so broken and humiliated and demoralised, I think I've, I hit such a bottom that I just became so desperate. I think I was so desperate mm. and but, thankfully... But, but the desperation's being removed, mm. which is hard for people to get their head around because they're removing the desperation out of it. Yeah, because they're trying to manage it themselves in the services, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but that desperation mm -hmm. was what brought you to that mm. point. But the, also the desperation didn't happen while I was in the community, the desperation mm. happened when I was already in recovery. Well I think you was already mm. in desperation all your life, mm. but that's the moment you realised it. Always in desperation but didn't know a way out, didn't no. see the next step until I was actually in recovery myself. Yeah, and that creates mm. that perfect mm. moment where you Absolutely. take mm. Um, the autonomy on mm. your own life mm. Mm. where you take your life back mm. and then start aiming it in the direction mm. that you want to go in. And thankfully around good people who are able to, because I had no healthy navigation system or conscious in myself at that point, so I had other people in recovery who were able to help me navigate. Yeah, because how often did you wander off? A couple. <laughs> A couple of times wandered off. Horrific, yeah. horrific, just just a person in just total distress who couldn't cope. But you learn. Yeah, no, definitely. To come back. And the thing that was important for me, which I tell other people, is that at one point when I was relapsed, I went into a homeless place and at not, not one point did anyone try and make anything okay for me. I remember phoning up yourself and people were just in total distress, didn't know what to do. And all the, all the, you, yourself and the other people in AA would say to me, Sonia, have you phoned your sponsor? Get to a meeting. Have you done your programme? You know, what are you doing? Helping me take responsibility. And what that gave me was, because what I keep seeing in the rooms is people running in to save people. To, so as that person is probably having a tough time and they're about to hit their bottom, 
someone jumps in, family member or, or professional, someone jumps in and saves them from hitting the bottom. And I think that what that journey enabled me to do was I felt the pain so hard, so it helped me generate recovery for myself. Mm. So I was going, even though I was struggling and probably used a couple of times, I was started going to meetings for myself because I knew that I needed it to save my life, to phone my sponsor up, to start being honest about what was going on for me and to stop doing certain behaviours which kept leading me to the same place. And uh, so I think that was the important thing for me. Get to a meeting, phone your sponsor, bang, phone down. So I needed them people to be honest with me. I needed them people to show a little bit of tough love to me uh, for me to be able to generate recovery for myself. Mm. So that was, that was really important, I think. Yeah, I think that is um, a very important point to understand and I think the sad thing is like Scotland doing its consumption rooms I think that's a, a very desperate measure for a very desperate situation I don't think it should have got that desperate mm -hmm. and like I said I think there's probably several reasons for that but one is I don't think they invested enough in recovery mm -hmm. and I think that denies people actually a chance of move into that place because I think Definitely. you need to see the people yeah 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 you, you need to see people mm. like you that have made it mm -hmm. I think that's a very important part yeah. of of the process and being given a lot of support but I think it's understanding if we give very good focused interventions mm. you can raise people's bottom mm. that you can get them to that place before it gets too bad. Mm. I think society's waiting for it to get too bad before mm. it gives you good interventions. Mm. Well, I think my, my bottom was probably raised. I would maybe have gone on further, but I think my bottom was probably raised by the good people around me. Mm. Keep being honest with me. Um, armed with the facts about themselves, recovery, big book, program, and I don't think that um, not everyone in all meetings everywhere, in whatever fellowship is, is I don't think everyone has the education, mm. kind of knows what's wrong with them and knows what to do about it, knows enough about the steps and the process of kind of un unfolding. Yeah. I don't think a, a lot of people have that information. Yeah. Cool. All right, well, I think that'll bring us to the end. Just one more question. Mm. Just thinking where you've come from, where you're at now, where would you like to see yourself? What would you like to have happened in your life in the next three years? I think that I'd like to... Um, I'd like to have a... My relationship with Jodie is probably the most important to develop and get better with Hattie. As well, I'd like to be... That's your first grandchild. My first grandchild. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that that's important to me. Um, and my relationships with other family members to, to get better and um, improve. I would like to have sold my house in Suffolk and hopefully get myself somewhere in Southend. 
I would like to still be working in my job at Recovery First Housing um, with all the guys that are working in there. I would like still go on nice holidays. I think that going on holidays and looking after my own mental health and my well-being is really important. Um, and I think that's it. I don't. I don't really want too much from life. Mm. I love. I love being in my role where I work. At the moment, with admissions and referrals into the housing project, I love working with all the guys from from NA in in in, in my work environment. Um, that I think recovery first housing is growing and developing. So I think that's exciting for me to be. Mm part of supporting uh, the director, Megan, in, in that process. So that's really important to me. Um, being in Southend is important to me. Relationships, I think, are the most important thing in my life. Close, intimate relationships are really... The connection has been really important to me. Because I think that I've never, through my life, I've just never felt connected. And I think that started from my mum leaving. And then my dad wasn't very well. He had his own issues. So I think that all started from them. So I think in my adult life, the most important things to me are stable, intimate, balanced relationships with other people. Yeah. Most important thing in my life. Cool. We'll check on you in three years then. <laughs> when, when I'm, when I'm, I'm celebrating sure. my 20. Yeah, that'll yeah. be, won't it? <laughs> we, we, we do one. I'm sure you'll be there. Yeah. Anyway, thank you very much for coming, Sonia. We love you and appreciate you. Thank you. And um, thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Altered Attitudes. God bless.